Welcome to uh, Three Gens Theology. We are back, uh, three of us. Jim Ruff, Dr. Dr. James Ruff, my father-in-law. Cy Hayden, my son, and I'm Dan Hayden. We are uh, three generations here of ones who are following Christ together, and we believe it's a high priority for every believer to be firmly rooted in our walk in faith, and we want to come along as an encouragement and support for you as you do as well. And so we are excited to be talking about bibliology again, and excited to bring that to you today as we uh, talk about the preservation of the scriptures and a little bit about translation uh, today. So this is something that is... um, uh, something I, I'm, I've always been kind of interested in this, something that's been important to me. I've, I've morphed some in what I think, and we'll get to that on uh, translation stuff. Um, I've got some, some uh, weird examples and funny examples, as most people do, about this uh, scenario, and looking forward to talking through some of that uh, with you, with you, uh, and you today. And, uh, also, uh, hopefully it'll be a help and encouragement to you and s- to settle you in uh, your confidence in the scriptures. Uh, they are precious, they are valuable, and they are worthy of our study. And so that's what we want to encourage you to be involved in. Uh, Jim, why don't you lead us in prayer before you get us started. Father, we bow before you as the divine and, and uh, mighty and beautiful God whom we worship and adore We thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be in your family, to be your children, to have a relationship with you that will go on throughout eternity future. And we're just so great, uh, great uh, in our appreciation, in our love, in our passion for you. And we just pray that that will come out in the course of our uh, time together today. Bless, we pray, this study of the preservation and translation of your word and may all of those who are listeners be blessed by it, encouraged in their faith, and more understanding of these truths. Thank you for all of these blessings and for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible you have beside you is a fascinating, fascinating piece of literature. It has a long history. If we go back to the very beginning of its writing, back in the, to the time of Moses, uh, and trace forward, we find that the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek uh, texts that were put together to form this Bible were preserved by God in a very unique way. In our last podcast, I started out by reading an account of a king who wasn't even familiar with the scriptures uh, by legend, by by. Uh, things that he had heard by the priests who came by, the prophets who occasionally spoke. He knew there was such a thing. But imagine if we didn't have this word preserved through all of that period of time that we might have it in our hands now. Although it's not possible for us to trace that whole history, uh, we'll look at some markers along the way today. In this process, we will describe the biblical presentation of the subject and also some of the theological thought process that goes into describing the various theories as to how God has preserved his word. For example, God commanded that some of the books of the scriptures 
be preserved both physically and orally in unique ways. One way was that the uh, books of Moses were to be preserved in the Ark of the Covenant that was carried by the people of Israel from place to place as God moved them through the wilderness and then carried into eventually uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, God commanded the books be preserved there so they could be read in the hearing of the people every seven years that they might learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Deuteronomy 31, 9 and following. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, Moses wrote that when a king should rule over Israel, the king should write his own copy of the laws, the books of Moses, to promote his own obedience to the Lord and the welfare of his people. We can tell that by the days of Josiah, that command had long been forgotten. Hmm. Right. So the uh, copying of Scripture was something that was supposed to have happened for every king, but they hadn't done it. But they were kept. Those scrolls were kept. Mm -hmm. And even though they were perishable, the materials back then were more perishable than oh, yes. what we use today, they still lasted a long time. Um, and when they got them out to read for Josiah, they didn't fall apart. Right. They, they would have... Had a, they would have had a hard time reading them if they had fallen apart. And uh, then you do have the fact that when they did copy them, they copied them carefully, mm. right? And so you have the copies from different time periods that match, yes. that, that, are, that are very uh, accurate with one another, right? Beautiful example of that is the Dead Sea Scrolls that were uh, discovered uh, in the, well, early 20th century. But think about this. Those scrolls had been preserved in the mountains of, around Qumran, in the hills and valleys around the Dead Sea, uh, in mountain caves from around 200 B.C., or 200, yeah, 200 B.C., all the way through until the early 20th century. They were kept in jars, and uh, many of them were in very poor condition. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, they had survived in that dry climate all of that time. Okay. So the physical objects uh, were kept, were read, were cared for, and uh, eventually either put in jars and buried or put away. Uh, some of them simply wore out simply because they, right. they were used so much. And uh, the, the uh, Jewish people have a very interesting practice in that when a, a manuscript, any document that contained the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, wore out, they would bury it. They would put it into a place where it was no longer 
uh, capable of being found, but where it was not destroyed. Destruction does take place over time right. of any manuscript, but they did their best not to simply throw it in a heap or throw it in a fire or something like right. that. That's one thing I I'm, I'm, I think we're going to get to the copies of things, but one of the attacks of the preservation of Scripture is that uh, in order to get to year 200, year 300, you had to have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Um, but if, if you had a scroll that was uh, a, a copy of Paul's letter, mm -hmm. it's not like you're just going to um, toss that around wherever, right? <laughs> no. I mean, it's going to be a pretty special thing. And um, it's going to last because you're going to keep it in, yes. a, in a good place. You're going to, right, even if it's used a lot. Um, it's still going to be kept in a in a in a good place. So, um, you know, I've got a the Bibles that we have today are more sturdy mm -hmm. than what they had in scrolls then. Um, but some <laughs> some, but but I mean, there you know we've got we've got Bibles from the 1600s that are still Bibles. Yes, right. I mean, they're still. They're still Bibles. They're still there. Um, so, you know, for a for a scroll to last a hundred years, uh, I don't know that it would last a hundred years, but why not? I mean, you know. And so, you'd only need um, a copy of a copy, mm -hmm. you know, to get. So it's not like you had fourteen copies to get to. 80 years later, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and so I, I just think that even though it's perishable items um, and they did wear out from use, <clears throat> they're still such special items that they would have been treated differently. And obviously the way the Jewish people uh, went about copying things with mm. such care um, that even the early church that might not have used that level of copying still had a great care for those letters. I'm not sure where that fits in what we were talking about it, but I think, <laughs> I think that's an important thing in, in, in the perishable conversation. Yes. That they were perishable, but they still did last a time, and they treated them as carefully. Yes. It, you know, it wouldn't have, like you said, it doesn't necessarily need to have 14 copies to get however many years, but we do see that there were a good deal of copies. Uh, it, especially with the New Testament from church right. to church, like it was an expectation that as one church got it, they'd they'd copy it and then they'd try to disperse it and it right. disperse and disperse to the other right. to right. the other churches. Right. Uh, that way they all could read what Paul right. was but, writing. But it wasn't a telephone game where it was a a copy of 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 a copy. It was one source and several copies from that one source, mm -hmm. and then maybe other copies from like secondary copies from you know level two right. copies right not level 14 copies right you know what i mean there's a big difference in in that yes uh in the in the security of that i guess yes. you know uh so I, I think that's a a real attack on the scriptures um in our day that is just not legitimate mm -hmm. um but uh we don't know we don't have that tracing written down. 
that this was copy 2A, you know, written on the, on the scroll. So we don't know that, um, but it's uh, the, the accusations seem overblown to yeah. me. You know? I, what, what you're saying is, is very true. As long as we realize that every one of those copies of an original letter, for example, uh, that they were precious right. to the people who received them, and that a scribe would make in every case as few errors as possible in transcribing those early letters. Yep. We see that that, from a physical perspective, along with the preservation of the material, it also preserves the text to a great degree. Right. We're going to talk about how well-preserved the text is as we go along. Yep. But, but that is an important issue. How many texts does it take to go from the original sent by, say, Paul to the church at Ephesus to the point where that same letter is being read in 158 A.D. Right, right. So if you have Josiah written, reading the scroll that hadn't been read for long enough that he was unaware of it, yes, <laughs> you know, so that that jump seems longer than the jump that it would take from the early church writers, from from the original New Testament writers to the yes, the to the right. canonical early scripture. Yes, right. Now, it's very possible that there were priests who were very faithfully using and reading that same document. Mm -hmm. But when it was finally brought to the king, the impression you get from the way the process is described right. is that it was a discovery right. of that text. Yeah. 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 Right. So that's, that could be quite a long period of time. Right. Okay, so, but there is an issue with copying texts. Yes, there so is. So you want to jump in, jump in there and talk a little bit about that? If, if we think about the process of copying, um, uh, I would like to use uh, kind of a simple present-day example. But if you were writing down uh, on a piece of paper the writing of somebody else, say you were uh, making a, a, a copy of a document, a, a long quote that you were going to use for a paper you were writing. Um, would it be possible that in the process of uh, inputting that information into your computer or writing it out longhand and then putting it in the computer to get the text that you're going to use in your paper that you would make a mistake in copying it? Sure. W would that happen? Could it happen? Well, obviously the answer is yes, it could. Uh, even in doing a long paragraph or two paragraphs from a book, I've occasionally found that as careful as I try to be, I will once in a while find that I make a spelling error. I might not uh, spell the word or I might put in another word that is from my vocabulary that fits perfectly with the sentence but isn't the same word the original author used. Or I might go to the end of a sentence and then jump down two sentences because the ending of both of those are the same. Well, how confusing is that? 
it would be easy to move past text just getting to that next fourth sentence after the ones that were the same on the end. All kinds of those things can happen. And so as we're talking about translating, we're talking about taking something from one language to another. But when we're talking about transcription, that is copying one text and trying to reproduce it exactly as it was in its original form, there's always the possibility that we're going to have an error. And that's where we begin to find that copying errors do appear as the number of texts begin to multiply. And what we find is, and this is one of the more fascinating elements of how God preserved the scriptures, is that despite the tens of thousands of manuscripts that we have, much more than for any other ancient literature, as we examine those, we find that the great majority, the vast majority of changes from copy to copy are in these small transcriptional errors that I just described. A spelling error, a mistake of jumping from one line to another, the shortening or using of a different word instead of the one that was used in the original uh, to, that has the same meaning, but it's spelled slightly differently in, in the Greek or in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic. Knowing that these things can happen, we have to ask ourselves the question, did God along the way bring us any set of transcriptions that gives us the same result that we had in the original autographs? In other words, that everything is exactly the same as when they were first written down. And what's the answer to that question? We don't have that. We don't have that perfect book that you described last time with the glow behind it mm -hmm. that we can say, aha, this, this compilation here is exactly the same as what the first written copies were like. We do have, however, something different. And that is we have a mass of manuscripts whose history and relationship we can study. And we call that textual criticism. And the process of doing that will give us the benefit of actually being able to say that as much as we're able to determine by the relationship of all of these copies, this is what the original texts looked like. Right. So in, in all of those... Uh in all of those differences in the copies, I don't know how far to go into. So what, what we have in, uh, in the mass of copies that we have, some of them are lengthy manuscripts and mm -hmm. some of them are just little bitty fragments, right? right? We have many, many of them. Yes. We have some of them um, in, uh, also some of them in secondary languages yes. that, that, give uh, credence to the original language, right? That are quite old. Right. Um, so um, those, those differences that are there, the great majority of them are 
a misspelling of a word that is evidently that word still. Mm-hmm. Um, a transposed words where you've taken them out of out of order. Right. That still show it's still plainly what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or um, uh, a a fumbly a fumbliness with a word. Um, it's still plain what the what the sentence is saying, mm-hmm. but they've added a an and or a or a though or a a shall instead of a may and yeah. right. It's but it's still plain what it's saying. Yeah. That's the great majority of those things, right? Yes. There are a few sections where an entire section is not in some of the copies. First John has a section, right? That that would be probably not scripture. Right. Right? We would agree right. probably not scripture, a small section, right? Yes. And so there are places where uh the copies differ in what it says. But yeah. but that difference doesn't change anything about the truth of what the scriptures say, right? Yes. It doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't take so the inerrancy that we talked about before. It doesn't take what the scriptures say is true, and make it not true, mm-hmm. or it doesn't right. make what it's saying is true and morph it somehow. Mm. Right? It doesn't. Right. It doesn't do that at all. Mm-hmm. So we're not saying any of these copy changes, any copy differences, take any truth and morph it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So even where there's a where there's a even a section of scripture that might not appear in many copies and does appear in other copies mm-hmm. that even that even where it's a section it doesn't change anything about what the truth of the scriptures is saying right right is that that's right, right? that's be correct accurate. right so we're not talking about well jesus is lord well no he's not i mean that that's not the kind right. of thing that we're talking about right, right? It's important for us to recognize that we are really talking about two problems here. In God's preserving his word, on the one hand, we have the preservation across translations. And on the other hand, we have the preservation of the the text itself in transliteration. So we have translation and transliteration. Transcription. Transcription and, right. and translation. Uh, translation, yes, thank you. Uh, if we look at the fact that these both are involved, it helps us to understand better right. what God has done to give us what we have today. The families of manuscripts that we have, let's just talk for a moment about the New Testament. Yep. If we talk about the development of various texts. Let's let's just take one, for example, that has found its way into the hands of an individual who wants to translate that into his own language. As you mentioned, the translation of that text, while it is not identical with the original Greek, does, in fact, in that language show us what that person believed that text to have read. Right. 
In other words, if his translation was good, it's going to be a witness right. to the original text that was there. Right. Now let's go beyond that. Let's talk about just individual text. Let's say uh, we have three copies of one of Paul's letters, one of Peter's letters. It doesn't matter which one. We take this particular copy, and that copy is sent to a certain place where additional copies are made. That particular group of copies now goes to a certain location where those copies are then copied. It's kept there for a long time. Other people make copies of those copies, and they don't have available to them any of the copies that were made here or over here as other of those more original yep. copies were sent. What happens then as a result of that is that you end up with families of texts. Yep. Those families of texts are all going to be very similar to each other, but they might be a little bit different from this family over here which over the space of a long period of time was copied and copied and copied. Yep. So this family and this family, though they are very, very closely related, are going to have perhaps something that's written there that's not here. Or something that's written longer here that's not, that's written shorter over here. Based upon those same basic problems of taking a particular text and copying it over and, right. and then using that as my new copy of this book. Right. The reason we're going into explaining all of that is that we want you to understand that it's the difference between these language families that has made some of the differences that we find in, say, the King James translation and other more modern translations that may not include some sections that were there. Right. A lot of the modern translations will have those in italics or at the bottom of the page, or they will include them as regular text, but they'll have a note yeah. that in the best manuscripts, this is not found. Yeah. Well, what are the best manuscripts? Well, here we get into some really interesting and deep water because different people have different ways of measuring what the best ones are. But those who are involved in textual criticism and who do this as their life work have some basic rules that they work with. They are looking at the earliest texts. They're comparing them with various textual families that are found from the same period of time. They're looking at the oldest texts and the biggest texts and all the rest of these things. And by that, saying, okay, this particular sentence or this word or this phrase is found here, 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 here. Everybody has that same thing. That must have been there at the beginning. But over here, there's this little thing here that's not over here, and it's not over here, and it's not over here. So that's when they make the decision. It's because this family continued to bring that particular reading along mm -hmm. that we are going to have to say the majority of the texts don't have this or do have it. 
these are the ones that we're going to go by. Can I can I jump in on your sure. majority your majority thing? Because that majority text is one of the main main thoughts. So in your three families example, mm-hmm. it's not how it is, but if if your three families example, if one of the families you have a hundred samples from it, and one of the families you only have five samples from it. And so when you go to compare, you might have um, a predominant number of the of any of the differences. Mm-hmm. The, the majority of the differences would be in this family all the time. Yes. Because the majority of the copies are in this family exactly. all the time. But not necessarily is that the best translation, the best... Um, copy because they're all from the same family. So that's where some of that difference comes in because you want to know, you don't necessarily want to give this family more weight just because you have more copies of it than you do the second family, even though you have less copies of it. Mm -hmm. So that's where the dating comes into, into play and, uh, and somewhat of leveling the field of the family's, uh, comes in, into an important look. Yeah, if, if you think about the leveling of the family, as you look at it this way as well, when you have Erasmus, who made a very important uh, Greek text, Erasmus had available to him a large number of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Most of those manuscripts were going to be from a limited number of families. And thousands of additional manuscripts existed that Erasmus did not have. So his Greek text, although it was a a very good one, would not include all of the evidence that was available or would be made available over the next several hundred years Mm -hmm. that would help to balance out some of the areas where perhaps he was leaning too heavily on one family of texts. Again, the differences that we're talking about here are not huge and they're not crucial. Right. As Dan said earlier, if we're talking about the, uh, the man who's laying aside the pool who is going, waiting for the waters to be stirred by an angel so he can go in and be healed, that little story, that little pericope is believed by most textual critics, most scholars, not to have been in the original manuscript, Mm -hmm. in the original New Testament book of John. However, um, that story includes elements of things that are both found in other parts of the Gospels or things that are certainly conceivable as having been found there. The only element that seems strange is the angels stirring the waters And we have to recognize the fact that, as we said, Scripture includes some of those traditions that the Jews held, that Jesus often spoke against himself. Uh, And another another area that I think uh, shows it is that when um, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, um, the uh, kick against the goads kick against the pricks Mm -hmm. statement in the first reading of it i think it's acts nine 
X8, one of those early, it, it lists it there, mm -hmm. but quite possibly it wasn't really listed there, but it is in the second telling of the story, it's there. Yes. So it doesn't change the, it actually doesn't change the story. Not at all. Um, but it might not actually have been in the, in the manuscript in the first tell in the first uh, section. And another example of the same thing, Dan, would be any situation you have in the Gospels where in uh, the first and third Gospel, Jesus says this. In the second Gospel, it's a little shorter, but basically it's the same message. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, well, did this, if these two were based on this, did they add something to it? But is, is this one based on... And so the descriptions that we have of how some of these things came or didn't come, often are they come down to the simple fact that in copying those Gospels, one copyist might actually have taken something from what's in one Gospel and added it to what is found in what Jesus said in the other. If he said it over here, and that was an accurate statement of what Jesus said. That copyist mistake makes no difference whatsoever right. in what Jesus actually taught. Right, right. Okay, so there are some accepted groupings um, of those copies. Mm -hmm. um, and I, what's funny is I like in your um, missional theology that you have separated the first two because when I am talking to people about about these I typically put them together mm -hmm. and it's because it's too it's simpler to, to put them together than it is to separate them but the the majority text and the textus receptus are are different mm -hmm. um, I often talk about them together because it's more complicated than it needs to be <laughs> to separate them but the majority text is, uh, a text that was a Greek text that was put together that is what the majority of the copies would say, right? At the time at, that it was at the time that it was put, put together, together. Yes. right? So we have more copies now, but right. at the time it was put together. Whereas the Textus Receptus, Receptus or the received text was not. It was it was using many of those same manuscripts, but not not all of them. It used a, a fewer number of them. Right, right. Uh, um, a fewer number of those manuscripts, mm -hmm. ones that they chose to be more pristine or more clear, um, and it just went with a those those fewer number. Right, right, and that's that's the basis. The Textus Receptus is the basis for the King James uh, Bible, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and then, um, so those two are from the same manuscripts. The majority just uses more of the manuscripts than the Textus Receptus would. I would say it the other way around. The Textus Receptus would actually take some of the, uh, uh, well, let's put it this way. If you look at the manuscripts, again, we go back to Erasmus. If you look at the manuscripts that were available at the time that the text that the King James Bible is based on, the authorized text, right. you have a set of, of texts at that point that were believed by the scholars who did the 
the received text mm -hmm. uh, as the the acceptable text of the day. Right. That was the one that they had, and they had some from the majority text, and they also had others that they had included in their their grouping that helped them to decide that that was the one they were going to work from. Right. Okay. So they had ones that weren't in the majority text. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was wrong on that. Um, and then you have one that is called the Alexandrian tradition. Talk about, can you expound on that any? Um, the, the traditions that were based on these cities that the, the scholars often ended up in um, actually based a, a good deal of their thinking these traditions uh, based their thinking on the texts that were available to them at that time. And one of the strongest, largest manuscripts, the texts that we have available, came out of Alexandria. And so that tradition that comes from that particular text is considered to be, uh, since it's the best preserved the most dependable one because it's also very early. The question then comes, do we base everything on the Alexandrian text? Right. And the answer to that is no. As you look at it, you realize that the Alexandrian tradition differs from some other very acceptable texts from that period of yeah. time that help us to build a bigger picture, a clearer now, would picture. Now, would those copies have been found more recently or would they have... Would that Alexandrian text have copies that are found, found, I mean, not, they're, mm -hmm. they're early manuscripts, but they found prior to the authorized version and, and after? There are earlier ones that would have been from that time right. that would that fit very well with the Alexandrian text. Yeah. The most recent and largest of those that have been found was found in the 19th Re century. Right, more recently, right, okay. Okay, so then um, the the other type of so those are ones where you have them more in the fam more in the family setting, mm -hmm. right? And then you have the idea of an eclectic um, manuscript. Right. So w tell me about that eclectic manuscript. An eclectic manuscript or an eclectic text is based upon gathering the best readings, including age, independence, uh, genealogy of the readings, the families that we're talking about, um, the greater or lesser number of transcription errors. All of those factors are taken into consideration as all of these manuscripts that we have are compared with each other. And based upon all that comparative work, uh, a decision is made that this text that is drawn from all of these other sources is the closest that we can get to the original Greek text. Um, that is then one major approach that is taken to demonstrate that God has preserved his word, not by preserving one specific text, but by preserving tens of thousands of manuscripts that when being compared will give us the ability to say that this is the closest we can get. 
And the, the eclectic text would be one that does try to give a weighting to the fam, different families uh, so that you're not simply giving um, because this family had many more copies. Right. Uh, you're going with it every time, mm -hmm. but rather giving um, more weight to um, a, uh, the different families more equally. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. In yeah. other words, if you could imagine that you have, let's say, a hundred texts that are all very directly related, it's obvious that they're related. And over here you have uh, 30 texts that are close but have a few distinction, distinctions that they all share in common. Mm -hmm. And you have over here another pile of texts that are, that are uh, a little different from both, but most is in common with say this one over here. What happens is you end up with so many of these individual families of texts that you have to begin to say, okay, um, since all of these agree in so many areas, that's gonna be our foundational text. Right. And then we're gonna look at all of these variant readings right. and find out by comparing them where most of the changes have taken place and why. Yeah. And through that, we come to the eclectic text. Right. right. And so we are, again, we're only talking about small portion. Uh, very, very, yes. Very small changes. But so if, so in, your, in what you're talking about there, the, the family that would have the, the hundred copies might only count as one. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yes. Because they're the same, the same yes. variant. Yes. Right. They might only count as one. Just right. because they have many copies doesn't mean that they get to count as many. Right. That's that's yes. the idea of the eclectic. Which that's is, the idea. Which I, I really like that. Uh, I think that's a, a healthy, um, a healthy look at that. Um, and, and maybe you don't. Uh, maybe it doesn't only count as one, but it shouldn't count as a hundred, in that scenario. Right. You know. Right. Um, so I, I think it's uh, quality. We have to. We have to because we're running out of time. We're going to have to save translation for our next recording. But yep. I, I think it's important for us to remember as we look at all of this, there is another theory of preservation, and it would be unfair not to mention it, and that is the theory that is uh, behind the revised version or the American, uh, excuse me, the King James version being um, the proper translation of the proper text, the, the authorized text of the time. The idea behind this is that God, in order to make sure that we had the perfect copy of the New Testament as he wanted us to have it, and the Old Testament, uh, gave us, through the, the work of the people, for instance, who were behind the Byzantine family, um, that, that those who were led of God to make the best copies of the best manuscripts all the way along brought us to the place where we had, at that point, among all of those scholars, the agreed-upon best Greek text. God had preserved that for these through this one series of texts. And then a translation was made that was the best translation that could be made. Um, next time, we're going to talk about 
why it is that there are some concerns about that particular approach to preservation. Because it basically requires a divine intervention along the way in order to make all of this work out. And there are some things that are included that we would question. And so we're going to have to talk about that next time. Yep. So, Dad, you've talked some about, um, well, we, we've talked some about what, you know, it, with all these issues, very small issues, but with all these issues, wouldn't it be easier if we just had the, you know, the first translation? Like, well, wouldn't that make life easier? And, and, and I like how, I like your thoughts on that. You want to? Yeah. Uh, I, so my thought on that is I think it's much healthier for us not to have those original manuscripts because what I believe we would do is that we would end up worshiping those um, those documents, um, I think, m much like the Shroud of Turin, you know, uh, it becomes a, a relic. It becomes a, a thing that we come and and uh, and you know pay honor to. Well, it, the paper and the ink are not precious. The truth of it is what is precious, and God has brought that truth through uh, to us. We can we can have the preciousness of the truth still without having the, uh, the original manuscripts. And so I think it, it, uh, it's not a weakness. Uh, we don't have to be afraid of that, um, not having the original manuscripts. I think it's actually healthier for us because I think we would probably do bad things because we're fallen is what we do. There is a, a statistic that it would be, I think, helpful for you to know as we wrap things up. The estimated number of the randomly distributed textual variants of all kinds in the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, about 400,000, divided into the number of words in the, man, in the manuscripts of all the books, 204 million words, demonstrates that on average one variant occurs every 500 words, resulting in an accuracy of 99.8% for a typical manuscript. 99.8%, which means that those tiny differences that occur that have no bearing on Christian doctrine or on the teachings of the Bible as a whole um, have a very, very small impact. God's word is preserved for us. Yep. Yeah, the truth of it still comes through plainly, um, and uh, you know we can we can find ourselves to be critical of it uh, for whatever reason. You know the the the, the parable of uh, um, Lazarus and his brothers. That mm -hmm. uh, let me go back and tell them, mm -hmm. and uh, if he doesn't believe the the law and the prophets, you know, one could raise from the dead and they still wouldn't believe. Right. And so really that's where we are with the scriptures. Um, we, we have, we have the truth that has come through. Um, and the fact that we don't have the paper and the ink, um, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter. Right. And, and so we, um, um, we can still have people look at that and say, yeah, but that 0.2%, God wouldn't allow that if, if he were really God. Um, but that's just not true. I think he's actually safeguarding us from the worship of of the object instead of the author, which I'm, I'm convinced we would probably 
we would probably do. Right. I mean, we see thousands, probably millions that go to the, the tomb where they think Jesus might have been buried that mm-hmm. there's, I mean, there's some level of evidence there, but there really isn't a ton of evidence. And we see, you know, people going in droves to go just to go see that, yep. you know I mean? If we 100% knew that this was the original, you know, of whatever, then obviously we'd have many that went and just wanted to, just wanted to be close to it. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Yep. That's right. Well, good. Well, um, this this topic is one that, again, much like uh, the canon, can trip up people as they first hear about it. Um, that they're un, they're unprepared for m- man's error, man's copying difficulty to be involved in our getting the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something we have to be afraid of. It's not something we have to be ashamed of. Um, we have not rewritten the scriptures. We have not tried to change them for cultural benefit. Um, no, we want to go further back and further back to, f- to find it closer and closer to the original, right? We want it to be as close to the original as we can, we can get it. And we have a faithful uh, truth of the scriptures uh, coming through, and uh, we have good, good translations, which we'll get to next time, of, of the scripture. And so we can be confident in, in what we have in God's Word. So you don't need to be afraid of those, uh, of those accusations, and uh, you can be confident in God's Word. Well, we're so glad that you are with us and uh, continuing to uh, take in these truths on bibliology. And we're not done yet. We keep coming, and we'll have uh, more podcasts coming each week as, as we gather. So let me just share with you uh, Psalm 19. 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So let me encourage you that the scriptures that you have today are trustworthy. They are a good translation, many faithful copies that agree uh, in what they proclaim to be. They are the testimony of the Lord that is sure, and they are still restoring the soul. And so Amen. you take them in, and you, uh, you look to them for direction in your life and, of course, for uh, salvation in Christ. That's the, the most uh, important teaching that we see there. Well, glad you're with us. And, uh, you know, as we say all the time, we want you to comment and to review and if you need to email uh, me, you can certainly do that at pd at crossbridgeindy.com. Thank you for joining with us and uh, dig into God's Word.